you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 to begin this morning. We are going to be spending most of our time in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and indeed the last chapter of our Bibles, Revelation 22. But to begin and for context, I want us to go to the first book of our Bible and Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the story of man's fall. It is the story that explains why the world is the way that it is today. Why do we look around at such brokenness in our physical world? Why do we look around at such brokenness in relationships between nation and nation, between people and people, between race and ethnicity and race and ethnicity. Why between men and women? Why is there brokenness everywhere we look? Genesis 3 tells us the answer. It is here, of course, the story of man's fall. And I want us to look at the result of that fall. God has now confronted man's sinfulness. God has now brought a curse on the serpent. He says in verse 14, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. A curse falls. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. We take this as a picture of what Jesus would do when he came to, to, to deal a death blow to Satan on the cross. And yet on that cross, Satan yet bruises the heel of Jesus Christ. This is a prophecy of the gospel but it also depicts the kind of enmity that even has fallen between man and animal. The realm of humans and the realm of beasts. Keep on going in verse 16. Under the woman, he said, it's Mother's Day, remember. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Look at this aspect of the curse. Two aspects of the curse that the woman is said to bear. I don't know which one is worse. Either on the one hand bearing children in great sorrow and pain, or dealing with husbands. I don't know which one's worse. They both seem pretty bad. At least with a, a, a newborn, you get a cute little baby to go home with. Just, this husband's, there's not much to see here, right? I know, I understand that. And the curse here, but really notice all, in all seriousness, look at the curse. The curse here is that even the life-giving process of motherhood would involve agony and suffering, as those of you who have birthed children can attest to. Not just in that regard, but then, of course, we think of all the struggle and sorrow physically and emotionally and relationally that come with child rearing. Some of you have experienced that poignant pain. 
And notice what he says relationally. Thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Not only is there conflict in even the life-giving process of birth, there is now, there is now conflict in the relationship giving rise to birth, in the marriage of a husband and wife. And indeed, the conflict we see in marriages today, the, the standard catalog of jokes regarding the struggle and the difficulty of marriage comes from this day. And we could say even bro more broadly depicts the struggle in relationship between man and man, between humanity. In the very next chapter, we read of the first murder when Cain murdered Abel. There's a breakdown, not only between animal kingdom and human, not only between human and their own body in the life-giving process, not only between human and human, but now look at what God says to Adam. Unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened, you have listened to the voice of your wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face, in this, in this backbreaking labor, Shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Again, do you see what is cursed here? Do you see now that nature itself is cursed? Rather than bringing forth easily that which sustains and renews life, it will only bring forth that kind of life by the sweat of man's brow, by the labor and activity that leaves men weak and exhausted and tired and frustrated. Life, nature itself, will not be wholeheartedly to sustain man. Man will have to break nature. And if you look today at the battle that is ongoing between man and nature, you would see the results of this day. Nature at odds with itself in these dramatic events, hurricanes, tornadoes, thunderstorms, lightning, earthquakes, when nature itself is not at unity with one another, causing destruction wherever it goes. And then man's attempt to bring nature to heal, to, to bring out of nature what life requires has been the great struggle of mankind. And friends, this is the curse. When we talk about the curse, why are things the way they are today? We go back to, Revelate, to Genesis chapter 3, where human is pitted against human in conflict, where human is pitted against animal, where human is pitted against nature, and where nature indeed is pitted against nature. We are entirely disordered. We are out of order, and that is why we experience life the way we do today. Now turn to the very last chapter of our Bibles, Revelation chapter 22. And what stands out to me about these short five verses that Calvin Todd read for us this morning comes in verse number three. And there shall be no more curse. Why are things the way they are today? Because sin has brought a curse. 
And what do we look forward to in eternity with God and his people? When there will be no more curse. Two weeks ago, we focused on the new heaven and the new earth. Last Sunday morning, we focused on the new city, Jerusalem, where God's people will dwell and go in and out in perfect liberty. And today we're going to look at what I'll call a new reality, a new reality. And that new reality simply is this, that the curse will be reversed and nature and humanity and all of God's creation will be united as one. Let's look first of all at what I'll call creation restored. Creation restored right here in Genesis, excuse me, in Revelation 22 and verse 1. Notice that very first verse. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare 12 manner, 12 kinds of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. Did you know there's going to be time in heaven? There are months. There are days, presumably. There are years. That's what this verse suggests, even though it will be eternity. And yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, again, I want you to have this picture in your mind. We tried to picture, as best we could, New Jerusalem last week. This immense city, 1,400 miles cubed. Massive proportions, beautiful, glimmering city. And maybe some of you said, you know what, I don't know about that because I don't like cities very much. Cities are dirty. Cities are crowded. Cities are dangerous. Well, I think you know this city's not going to be like that. But friends, if you had an idea of, of, of the city of Jerusalem as a sterile place, only big skyscrapers and only jewels and all that, you come to Revelation 22 and you realize that the new Jerusalem is a garden in a city or a city that has a garden, whichever way you want to look at it. And again, this wonderful picture is that, that, that humanity started in a garden and it will end in a garden. It'll just be in a city that all of us will be able to fit in. This is a wonderful pastoral picture, a river of water of life. And on either side of the river, there's a tree of life. Now, some have, pic uh, have, have pictured in their minds one tree that just happens to straddle the river. I, I don't, that's not what I see. I don't think that's what he's saying. My picture is there's this beautiful river flowing. And on either side of it, there are just groves of trees. I think when he says there's the tree of life, he just means like there's the oak tree, just the family of trees that he's talking about. It will be a life-giving family of trees that lines this river in this wonderful, beautiful sight. But notice what he says about this river of life. He says not only is it clear as crystal, it will not be dirty. It will not be defiled in any way. There will be no such thing as pollution. It'll be a water of life. That is to say, there will be something life-giving about the water itself. Now, what is this a picture of? It's a picture of 
Jesus and what he promised us to give us. Do you remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus sits down at a well, tired from his journey, and a woman of Samaria, that's the mixed race. Those were the people that were hated. The Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. And Jesus was a Jew and this woman was a Samaritan. And she came to the well by herself. You say, why did she come by herself? Women didn't go to the well by themselves. They went in groups. And then you learn that she had had five husbands and she was living with a man who now was not her husband. And you probably have an idea why women didn't want anything to do with her. Maybe she was a homewrecker. Maybe she had just developed a kind of reputation that she wasn't someone you socialized with. And this woman came to the well alone and Jesus looks at her and says, give me something to drink. And she says, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't like each other. And Jesus says to her, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me and I would give you the water of life so that you'd never thirst again. And friends, every one of us who has experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ has been indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God that God tells us if we are experiencing him the way he desires is going to be like a river of life coming out of us to heal other people and to heal ourselves. So this picture now, not only of what the Holy Spirit has done in our lives, but a real, I take this as a real aspect of heaven, a river of life, pure water that is designed for this life-giving taste. Notice as well, he says, in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life which bear 12 manner of fruits. I take this to be saying that it will bear 12 different kinds of fruit. That'd be a pretty cool tree. And you say, why does it say one fruit a month? I, t I, I read that as suggesting that each month it'll have a different kind of fruit on it. 12 months, 12 kinds of fruits, one different fruit a month. That's just speculation. We don't know for sure, but that seems to be what it's suggesting. And notice not only will there this, be this fruit, but the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You say, wait a second, I didn't think there was going to be any sickness. Why do we need healing? I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying that the, the tree itself will have leaves that are health-giving. They are devoted, they are designed to enhance life and promote it. Again, do you see the difference here? Under the curse, man and creation were at war with one another. They are in a destructive relationship with one another. In the new heaven and the new earth, in the city of Jerusalem, in the new reality... There will be no division. All of creation will be ordered to promote and sustain and enhance life, never to take away from it. The water will be there to promote life. The tree, the fruit, the leaves, everything about nature will be at one to promote life for God's people. What a thought. What a picture. But what I want you to notice here is the source of all of this goodness. Look again at verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as, as crystal, proceeding from where? Where? The throne of God and of the Lamb. Maybe that detail escaped you the first time you read it. 
The picture here is at the very center of the capital city of the new heaven and new earth. This massive Jerusalem, the very center of it is a throne. And coming from that throne, a river that feeds life to the tree of life, that sustains life, that promotes and enhances life wherever it goes. You say, why does it come from the throne? Because what's clear is that it's coming from God. God is the source of life. God at the center is the reason why humanity and creation are now in perfect harmony and unity. Never to have a destructive relationship again. The lamb and the throne are the source of it. And that's why we need to see not just this creation restored. This beautiful garden in the midst of this city. We need to see creation reoriented. What I mean by this is a focus on the throne. Now, let me ask you this. When is the last time we saw the throne in the book of Revelation? Does anyone remember? When did we see the throne last? Johnny nailed it there. The great white throne. You say, that was a place of judgment. Yes. Do you remember Revelation chapter 20? You can even flip back there if you'd like. Revelation 20, verse 11. John says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. So terrifying was the sight of God in judgment on that throne that that, the old heaven and the earth were simply removed and I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works and he says and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire thrown into the place of judgment Now, again, think about this picture, a throne being a place of judgment. Now, we don't have thrones like that today, not in America. The picture of a throne might not mean very much to you. Even our cousins, if you will, over in Great Britain, they have kings and queens, but their throne is ceremonial. It is not actual. It is not terrifying. It is not sobering. But God's throne is a place that should sober us. If we don't know God, it should terrify us. Because that throne will be a place of judgment. Friend, what would a throne have meant to the people who were reading this for the first time? Do you know what they would have thought being in the Roman Empire? They would have thought of the most powerful man in the world, the emperor of Rome. The emperor of Rome had absolute power. If he wanted you dead, you died. He had complete authority. The picture of the throne was not only one of judgment like a judge acts. It is of a king who reigns supreme and no one messes with him. He is the supreme boss. In fact, this idea of the throne of authority, if you just flip back to Revelation chapter 4. The picture of the throne in the book of Revelation is one of the key themes. It's it's, it's said, I I didn't confirm it myself, but three-fourths of every reference to the throne of God in our entire New Testament are in this book. This book is about a throne. 
Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. John says, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither. John is transported up into heaven, into God's dwelling. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And notice then verse number nine. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever, the four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, the central focus of heaven, saying, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The throne was the place of authority where everyone bows, where everyone worships. A throne of judgment, a throne of authority. But notice it's also a throne of grace. We think of that passage wonderfully in in Hebrews that says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. The seat where God dispenses not just judgment, but mercy, goodness, where he satisfies our needs. And Revelation has this same picture. Will you look with me at Revelation chapter 7? If you're not catching all these references, maybe you can just scan, write them down and you can take a look at your own time. Revelation 7 and verse 9, John says, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindred and people and tongues stood before what? The throne, again, the throne is central here. And before the lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. They're praising God together. And then notice in verse 13, one of the elders answered, one of these people that John saw and said to John, what are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came they? And I said unto him, sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. You see this picture of this throne where God is, where God rules in judgment and authority and mercy and grace for his people. That's the central picture. That's what's at the center of the city of Jerusalem. That's what that's the, that is at the center of this new heaven and new earth. And you say, why is that relevant? Because it was always supposed to be like this. Until man decided that he would rather pitch his own throne and displace God's. What was at the center of the fall? When man said, I will rule, not you. God said, do not eat of the fruit of this tree. And and man said, I don't know that you have my best interests in mind. I will eat. I'm reminded of this sobering passage in the Gospels when, when Pilate has looked at, has examined Jesus and said, I don't find any fault in this man. The people say, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, will you crucify your king? 
And those people said, we will not have this man to reign over us. We will not have this man to be our king. And friends, today, across this world, billions of people are raising their fist at Jesus Christ who died for them and saying, we will not have that man to reign over us. But what they cannot escape and what you and I cannot escape is there is a throne in heaven. And one day there will be a throne on earth. Every knee will bow before him one day. Those voices that said, we will not have this man to rule over us. One day their knee will hit the floor and he will rule over them in judgment for eternity. If you ask me why this world is the way it is today, the answer is sin. But even going before sin, underlying that sin, is the throne of man that says, I will, not what you will. Have you noticed today that in our culture, we are very open-minded. We're very tolerant people to a point. We will not tolerate someone saying to us, God says thou shalt. Why? Because that kind of language disrupts where my throne is at the center of my life. And friends, for the curse to be reversed, for sin to be removed entirely, what needs to go with it is selfishness, self-centeredness. The throne of me, myself, and I being at the center of life in the new heaven and the new earth, God's throne will be the center. And that's why creation will be restored and renewed. That's why a river of life will be for healing. That's why trees will bear fruit and leaves to promote and enhance life because it's coming from God's throne and he will be in the center. The commentator R.C.H. Lenski said very, very appealingly, he said, cure selfishness and you have just replanted the Garden of Eden. And do you know how true that is? Cure selfishness and we will be restored to the way God intended us to be from the beginning. When not my throne is at the center, but God's is. Do you know this is the story of the rest of the Bible? I think of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're studying as men together in our Thursday evening studies, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not too late for you to jump in. And there's this wonderful picture of Ecclesiastes as being the book written by Solomon. Who was Solomon? The wisest man who ever lived, blessed with exceptional wisdom from God. A man who lived in unparalleled wealth, unparalleled uh, comfort for his day, built a glorious kingdom. A man who indeed was a man who lived a life for sexual conquest. 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 different women. You say, what about Solomon? Solomon comes to the book of Ecclesiastes and he said, here's my, here's my word. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Here's a man who had everything that you could have in his day. And he said, all of it is empty. Why? Because what Solomon apparently didn't realize until too late was that he had put himself on the throne was that from an earth-centered perspective, nothing makes sense. I pursue what I want on the throne of my life, and I find it doesn't satisfy me. 
I drink the water from this stream that I think is going to quench my thirst. And I say, that left me thirsty. I need more. We pursue relationships. We pursue connections. We pursue power and prestige and money and wealth. And then we look back and we say, what did I get? It's all vanity. That's why I think what is most important about the book of Ecclesiastes is not how it begins, but how it ends. When at the end of looking across his entire life, that from an earthly perspective looked like complete vanity and emptiness, Solomon's conclusion was this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Where does Ecclesiastes end? With a throne. Obey God, because he will sit in judgment. And friends, what our culture needs to hear above anything else, I think, today, is that one day it does not matter where they think the throne is or is not. One day God's throne will be established, and every created being will bow before it. You see, there's not only creation restored here. There's creation reoriented toward the throne of God being at the center in full authority. And yes, in full mercy and grace. And because the throne of God is central in that place, I want us to see thirdly, creation reordered. Let's keep on going in verse number three. And there shall be no more curse. Why? The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. That's why there's no more curse. Because God has reoriented. God has reordered it. Sin has been destroyed. And now God reigns supreme. And notice verse 3. And his servants shall serve him. Do you know that word servants in the Greek means bond servants? It means in our language, slaves. You say, that doesn't sound much like heaven. His slaves will serve him. Until we realize that Christians across every age and even across our New Testament identify themselves freely as the slave of Jesus Christ. You say, why? Because Jesus bought them. He bought us. With his own life, his most precious thing that he could give, he gave for us. And when he purchased us, who were bound for sin and death and hell, the only right response to, me, to him is to say, I'm yours. What do you want me to do? His slaves shall serve him. You say, work? Yes. God created a garden in the beginning for man to work. The curse meant that work would be drudgery, would be demeaning, would be draining, exhausting. Friends, why do we hate work today? Why don't we like our work? It may be because it's draining. We get tired when we do it. And we say, I need to rest. But friends, there you'll have perfect energy. Your body will be restored to a place of unlimited capacity. There will be no draining or exhausting work there. Why else don't we like work? Maybe because it's dreary. It feels like drudgery. It gets boring. It is monotonous. And then up there, 
We realize that our service of God will be parceled out by the one who knows us perfectly, who knows all our capacities and all our interests. We will have perfect insight into why we are doing what we are doing and our work for eternity will not be monotonous for a moment. Why else don't we like work? Because it may appear demeaning at times as if we are operating under our capacity into jobs that we think we're fitted for greater or more noble tasks. And then up there, we realize that our task will be coming from the one who himself is the supreme Lord, the perfect boss. And all of our work will be reordered around that throne to serve and glorify his name perfectly. You say, what kind of tasks will we be doing? I don't know. Maybe it will be doing something in the new heaven and the new earth. Maybe it will be bringing the glory of the nations in. It will be something productive. It will be something worthwhile. And friends, we'll, we'll experience the satisfaction that some of you have experienced in doing a job excellently in seeing it come to its fruition and you get this sense of satisfaction that says that was right and it felt great. We'll experience that perfectly forever, for eternity. Our work will be reordered, our orientation toward our daily tasks. But not only that, keep on going to verse four. Not only will servants serve him, but they will see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. Not only will we be reoriented to our tasks, our daily tasks, we will be reoriented to our relationship with God. We will see his face. When we read our Bibles, we see people who are confronted with the presence of God falling down in terror. But there we will see his face and we will be perfectly suited to enjoy it. Jesus in the Beatitudes said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 said, now 13, I'm sorry, said we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, seeing God, we who are so broken, we who are so sinful, we who have failed him and rebelled against him day after day and hour after hour and minute by minute one day will see his face forever. Not only that, we will have our name written in his name written in our foreheads. I don't know what that's going to look like. I remember that back in Exodus chapter 28, the high priest had a miter, a, a, a hat on for the performance of the of the service of the temple and on that hat was written holiness to the Lord, the name of Jehovah literally on his forehead and whether indeed it will be written on our skin or simply around us, identifying us in some way, our relationship with God will be so reoriented that we will always be identified as his. You say, what does that mean? Some of you have been to a sporting event before and you identified with a team when you went. You took, put a shirt on that said Vikings or Timberwolves or whatever it is and you went. But then you came home and you took it off. Some of you go to work and you have a badge and you has your picture on it. It has the name of the company and you identify with that company every day or you drive a company car and on that logo is on the door is the name of your company. But then you get out of that car or you take off that badge. 
some of you have perhaps in your yard an American flag or some other sign. You are identifying with something. But here in the new heaven, in the new earth, you forever will be identified perfectly with God and with the Lamb. Your relationship to him will be perfectly ordered forever. But not only that. Verse 5 says, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. Again, a picture of the reorienting of all nature to man's good. And then notice this, and they shall reign forever and ever. You say slaves reigning? Yeah. Reigning with God? Yeah. Revelation 3 says, to him that overcometh, will I grant, this is Jesus speaking, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. There will be an identification, not just of, of relationship with Jesus, but of reigning and ruling with him. Now, it seems to me as I read scripture, we're not going to have all the same tasks In the parable in Luke 19, Jesus gives 10 pounds to one and five pounds to another. And based on what they do with that here on earth, Jesus says, well done. You will reign over 10 cities. You will have 10 cities and you will have five cities. I don't know what that's going to look like. We're probably not all going to have the same amount of ruling the same kinds of tasks or things. But what I see here is it says, and they shall reign. Who's they? All of us. Now, friend, think about that in light of what we experience today. What is all of human life when it comes to government? A power grab. In 2016, the Republicans controlled all three branches of government. They controlled the White House, they controlled the Senate, they controlled the House of Representatives. Fast forward to 2021, and the Democrats hold all three. And do you know what happened the moment that one party takes control of a lever of government? The other party starts plotting, how can we get power back? How can we win some elections? What mess, part of our message needs to change so we can be in control? And friends, we are, we are blessed that that transfer has been peaceful. Because if you look around our world, Usually that transfer oftentimes is not from one throne to another. We fight over who has the power. Do you remember back to the curse? God told Eve, your desire to your your husband will be to your husband and he will rule over you. What is this? What is that aspect of the curse? A constant struggle for power and authority in our relationships across humanity. What will be in heaven? All of us reigning, but with complete harmony and unity. No one's going to be there in heaven saying, hey, why don't I have his task? Why don't I have her job? Why don't I have that position? Because all of us will be oriented not around our own throne, but will be reoriented around the throne of God. He will be the one in complete charge, and that'll be good enough for all of us. Revelation 1 tells us that we that God has made us to be kings and priests. And I hope what all of us are looking forward to, if we know Jesus, is that one day we will reign with him eternally as kings and queens by the blood of the Lamb 
and in the reversal of the great disorder that we see all around us. What does this mean for us today? One thing I want to suggest to you is exactly what Lenski said. Cure selfishness and you have just replanted the Garden of Eden. We are in a life under a curse. Our life is disordered. It's just the way that it is until we experience the fullness of what God has for us one day. But this truth still rings out. You will never have peace as long as you are on the throne of your life. And as long as your throne is the focus of your time. The only thing that will bring the satisfaction that God intends for our life here on earth is the extent to which his throne is central in our lives, in our relationships, in our time. Someone said it very simply but very wisely. Joy is J-O-Y. Jesus, then others, then you. What true joy is when your life is oriented in such a way that first and foremost, you bow before the throne of God and then you go to minister to others. Friends, our marriages today that in under the curse are marked by this jockeying and this strife and this conflict, they are the outcroppings of selfishness. They are the outcroppings of each of us that desire to put ourselves on the throne and put our spouses in second place. Cure selfishness in your marriage and you have just replanted the Garden of Eden. When we put Jesus and then others and then me last. Our church relationships cure selfishness. Put the throne of God central in worship and then the service of others central. And we will experience a kind of Garden of Eden in our fellowship with one another. May all of us be willing to examine our own lives to say, God, reveal my own selfishness and my orientation to self to me and then break it. Break it. When the throne of God is at the center of our lives, we are living in harmony with him. But there's also this, and this is where I want to leave us today. I want to leave us with the wonderful thought that your life has this future through absolutely no work or merit of your own. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God came through his son into the mud where we as sinners pursuing our own pursuits of mud, of emptiness, of vanity, we're rolling around in it. Jesus came down into the mud, underneath all of us in the mud, to lift us out, to give us a new set of clothes, perfectly clean, to lift us up one day to sit with him in his throne in a perfectly restored relationship with God for eternity. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. Why did he do that? Because he had mercy on those who would receive his mercy. 
And in light of that grace, what more can we do right now but worship? In fact, this is where all of Revelation is driving. Look with me at verse 6, will you? This angel said to him, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophet sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the saying of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen this wonderful vision we've been going through, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. He was so overwhelmed by what was prepared for him that he fell down and started worshiping the angel. This is a godly man who knew better. But he was so overwhelmed. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship. God. Friends, your response to everything that we've been seeing in a new heaven and a new earth, a new city of Jerusalem, and a new reality where there is no curse, is to bow your hearts and worship God. And then by his grace, do everything that you can to order your life in worship around his throne. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this incredible reality that is before us. It is through none of our merit. It is solely by grace. And Father, how much that should humble us this morning. That you have reached down in love and chosen us. Father, I pray that if there's even one here who has never recognized the lordship of Jesus, the throne of Jesus over their life, may today be the day that they are brought to salvation in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, for each of us in the ways in which selfishness still reigns in our life, in our relationships, in our marriage, in our use of time, in our use of our possessions, of our money. Father, may we reorder ourselves today around your throne. And may we experience the joy that comes as a result. Let's bow our heads, bow our hearts, worship God, and allow him to speak to us this morning. And there was no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb was in it. Father, oh, what a day we look forward to. May your people reflect your joy in submission to you, even this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.